I invite you to turn your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. I'll take up at verse 9 and read to chapter 25, verse 3, as we look at a continued, extended sermon. Originally, this and many other chapters were part of one sort of collection of sermons in the middle part of Deuteronomy that is an expansion of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and its application into case laws and how we can look at these things and apply them even today and by that sort of clause that we find in the Westminster Confession, the general equity of those things. This is helpful for us because it provides a means of appreciating the eternal um, appropriateness of God's law even given centuries, millennia ago. Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 9, verse 8, rather, to 25, verse 3. Take care, in a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts upon it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men, then they come into court, and the judge decides between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Then if the guilty man shall, uh, deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but no more, not less. If one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother might be degraded in your sight. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray even now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, we ask that even now 
That you might give grace to we who hear and to me who seeks to exposit your holy word. That we might receive wisdom and understanding. That we might grow in grace and that your name might be lifted high among us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, it is impossible to avoid that when you live in community long enough with one another, we will have lives that overlap one another. There will be bickering. There will be conflict. We will do things and feel things and say things that have not just individual existential effect, but corporate and congregational effect. We are no islands. We may seek to escape, but we cannot. Add to this, we are sinful creatures. And as we, the saints, are struggling against indwelling sin, we must promise and commit to one another that the names and reputations that we possess are at times in the hands of each other. Uh, There is no more clear place that this is displayed than in the court. When a witness is called, And they place their hand upon the Bible and they swear an oath that even in the name of God they will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that if they bear false witness against their neighbor, they are liable of condemnation themselves. And this, so that true justice, truth, might be out, might be declared, and so that true penalty, or not, might be arrived to. It is the inclination of the human heart, however, to harm, to attack, to seek in the hopes of preserving and expanding one's own reputation that you do harm to another. Or as one man once said to another, there ain't room in this town for the both of us. This is oftentimes how we operate with one another. When we bicker, when we fight, when we accuse, when we bite and devour, it is always for the kingdom of ourselves and the promotion of it. Well, how are we, as those who endeavor to keep the ninth commandment, to preserve the good name of ourselves and one another? That is what we look at this evening. And what the result, that wretched, rotting result might be if we begin to tell lies and seek to harm the reputation of others. Now, if you go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, and I continue to recommend that particular section of the exposition of the law of God, when I copy it and paste it in my notes, there's about 25 lines of text. I'm not going to read that because I don't want to put you to sleep ever before I get to my body point, my main points. I would encourage you, as I have already, to go and look at those things Um, It's more simply read and understood if you do it even in the privacy of your own home or in family worship. Basically, what we're talking about isn't just lying. It is lying for a reason. It is lying in order to bring about not the cause, a righteous cause, but an unrighteous cause for the harm of another. That we are called to call a thing what it is. Now, the interesting thing about that is it has incredible application to the confusion in our modern culture today. You are not allowed in Scripture to call something that is not what it is something else. I think you know what I'm saying. I think you understand. That is misgendering, misattributing, and robbing from the Lord glory that He is due by right of His own revelation. 
You can't close your eyes and just want things to be the way they are. They are what they are because God has made them so and we live in His world. Blasphemy is a violation of the Ninth Commandment because you are robbing from God and seeking to tarnish the good name of the One who has been gracious even to all men. Why? Why? Well, to build oneself up in order to create an environment in which your oftentimes bad, immoral choices make sense. But we are not to be those who shut their eyes and stop up their ears to the truth of God's Word, but to call a thing as it is. Two points that I want to make this evening. First, laws concerning false witness. Laws concerning false witness. And then secondly, a good name in the good land. A good name in the good land. Now, first, laws concerning false witness. When we look at verse 8, you may be thinking, why are we talking or why are we looking at something about leprosy? And the reason is given in verse 9. Moses says, take care in case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest, said, pre, Levitical priest shall direct you. Why is that? Because it's highly contagious. And the survivability rate of leprosy is not good. In fact, to become leprous is to embark upon a truly miserable life. Things start falling off. Your flesh begins to rot and you lose sensation in your body. It is a miserable disease. But this isn't about thou shalt not kill. This is about thou shalt not bear false witness. And that is why we find in verse 9 an expansion of an explanation of verse 8. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Well, what happened to Miriam? Well, Miriam, in Numbers chapter 12, spoke ill of Moses, the prophet of the Lord, and for her bearing false witness against her brother and undermining his authority in Israel, she got leprosy. As a judgment against her false tongue. What the Lord is saying through Moses to Israel is this. When you begin to bear false witness about one another, you bring disease into the camp. Maybe you've lived through something like this. The rumor mill. This is what gossip is. It is bearing false witness. And the effect of that is like, well, it's like the tongue that sets the whole forest ablaze. Nothing can survive it. If it is unbound, if it is wild, if it is not governed by the law of God. Now, what we must admit is this. If this is true... What it means is that we are woven together as a body and what we say about one another and how we bear witness about one another to another is very important. And even in the case where someone has wronged another and is guilty even of great sin, there is measure, there are limits to what is to be done and what can be done even to a guilty party. Now... What I will do is I will take the shorter catechism that turns 25 lines into a line and a half. Isn't that great? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to have that? It took six years. You, you know why it took six years? Because it's very hard to summarize things. Question 77 about the Ninth Commandment asks this question. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining of 
and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. Well, what is witness bearing? You bury, you bear, not bury, you bear upon yourself, your person, the name of Christ Jesus as one who has made a profession of faith, a public profession. And whatever you do, if you are a Christian, says something about the one whose name you bear. What this means is, though we have personal lives, our lives are never wholly private. We are constantly, like little atoms, bumping into one another. Now, question 78 asks the question, not what is required, but what is forbidden. The ninth commandment forbids whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Now, there are times where the truth hurts, but that is God's righteous bruising. What we cannot do is assume the role of unrighteous judge and seek to harm by falsehood. And if we begin to do this, we will destroy each other's lives. How many lives, even in the past five years, have been destroyed because of false accusations by people in public on social media that carry no validity or weight whatsoever other than a single charge from a single individual, which is why God says it must be upon the witness of two or three. How easy would it be for another to say, that person did that to me? And everybody starts clutching their pearls. Do you know why they do that? It is not because they seek to know the truth. It is because they seek to be known as those who, though not righteous, are virtuous. It is a hollow virtue. It is what we call virtue signaling. But there is no virtue after all. And what you may have is this gleaming, shining culture, but underneath it is a rotting, rotten foundation. That is where we are right now in the 21st century in the West. It is all the trappings of, that's so evil, but no real care. Signaling, no substance. What God is concerned with is that we understand that when we begin to speak ill of one another, leprosy will set in. It is not just about lying. It is about the intention of why you say what you say. Have you ever lied about another? For what reason? Why would you seek to harm another? Oftentimes. In fact... Almost every single time, the reason is clear. It is in order to either shift blame away from yourself or bring honor to yourself at the expense of another. And the reason we do that is that we do not seek, to, we do not seek honor from God. The approval of God is not enough. The work that God is doing in us to exalt in us a good name is not enough. And so we look at these cases. So look at, let's look at these cases. We see verse 10 through 13. You can take a pledge, but there are limits. Now, usury, as I said last week, is strictly prohibited in Scripture. Loan sharking. 
lending money at an unjust rate of return that would essentially make someone your slave. Now, you can take pledges, but what you cannot do in order to gain that pledge is to invade the home of another. That home is their castle. And if you were to go into that home, what you would do is you would potentially damage their reputation in the land. What you are saying by force is that this person is no good. And so you must wait for the pledge to be brought to you. Not only that, but you may not use that loan as a means to oppress the poor. You must preserve his honor and not manipulate his good name by humiliating him. These men, these women, these children, the poor, the helpless, the homeless, are after all image bearers made by God in his providence, given life, and brought into this world by his own design. And it brings God, it brings God great dishonor, it brings you great dishonor, and it brings the individual great dishonor when you oppress them financially. Look at verse 14 and 15. Related to that theme, you must not defraud your brother. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land and in your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day. That's interesting. How many of you hourly employees only get paid twice every other week? And you're going, I can't wait two weeks. God understands that. God's law is better than men's laws. I want you to understand this. God cares for his people. And he understands that there will always be the poor among us. And what you cannot do is wait to pay the one who has worked for his wage. You cannot defraud him by withholding the pay that he has earned. And in doing so, you humiliate him. And not only that, but you humiliate yourself. Where's Bernie Madoff? How many people regard him as an honest man? And it's not just Bernie. It's all of these others. Wealthy people who got there by trampling upon the backs of others, by swindling, by showing dishonor. Now there's another verse here, verse 16. Again, it has to do with the name. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Every man bears the weight of his own sin. Each individual bears the reproach of his own sin. Now the Code of Hammurabi declared that a father could, in fact, be put to death for the sins of his children. There are only two or three instances in the Bible where this happens. And it is there as a, well, it's the rule, or it's the exception that proves the rule, rather. But what we do need to understand is this. Judgment is for the guilty. What this rules out is social justice. You know what the concept of social justice is? That if you belong to a particular group of people, but simply by belonging to them, you take upon yourself as an individual all the things that belong to the group. And we live in a culture now where if you are a Christian, then you are guilty of a host of sins that other Christians may have been guilty for at one time simply because you are a member of that particular group of people. 
Not only that, but this is where the rule innocent until proven guilty comes from. And when we say innocent until proven guilty, that is what we mean. A charge may be brought, but a charge is not a decision. Evidence can be brought, but evidence is not a decision. We must wait until the matter is decided. And again, it is upon the person. You cannot believe all women just because they are women. You cannot say that justice is blanket justice, justice because all who are like this are that way. It eliminates the idea of group guilt and again, therefore, social justice. If you are guilty, you bear the reproach of your own sins. We cannot forget this because it is incredibly relevant today. Because you are lumped in now. Look at all the categories. You know these. And before anyone meets you, they know everything about you, don't they? They know exactly the kind of person you are because of your affiliations. But every man, every child is responsible for their own reputation. Now, our reputations are connected. But you children, when you sin and you rebel, you bear the reproach. You are guilty for those sins. In fact, the younger generation of Israelites in the book of Ezekiel said to the Lord, Our teeth are on edge because our parents ate sour grapes. Because our parents were X, we're like this. Young people, I've heard it. You say, I'm this way because you didn't do X. Parents, you say to them, you didn't do X enough. You didn't say this. You didn't do that. You're keeping me from this. And what you're doing is you are essentially bearing false witness against your parents. We need to be careful that we understand that we are guilty for the decisions that we make. Now, verses 17 and 18. You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Ah, there's the concept. <coughs> that you and I only have a good name because God has granted it to us by grace. You are not an utter wretch because God has redeemed you. And what God wants Israel to remember is that when you deal with those whose names are right on the precipice of falling into oblivion, that you uphold them and you bring them off the ledge and you protect them. What he says here, don't take a widow's garment as a pledge. She needs it to be warm. It's all she has. Remember that you had nothing. That you were slaves in Egypt. And the only reason you have a name Israel is because God was patient with Jacob. What was Jacob's name? Deceiver. And despite that name, God gave him a new name, chosen, beloved of God. This is all God's doing. And so what really lies at the heart of all of this is the idea of God's Worth that he places it upon a person, not only because they are made in God's image, but especially in the household of faith, because God has given us this title, adopted sons and daughters. 
And you do not have the right to call that other brother or sister in the faith anything other than what God has called them. God is the one who names. Like the book of Numbers. The book of names. We are to protect even those who are vulnerable because we remember how we needed to be redeemed. And then verse 19 through 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, this is the sort of law of gleaning. Leave behind something for the poor. Think of the reputation of those that have come up to you and asked you for a book. Do you think well of them? Oftentimes it's hard. Maybe they're dirty, maybe they reek of alcohol. Whatever it may be, they have done something to tarnish their reputation. Do not contribute further to that. In fact, honor them as those made in God's image. And when I say honor, I don't mean give them a bunch of money. Seek to discover what the problem is. Seek to provide, even in our societies, means by which those who are poor can help themselves even as those with much are willing to give. What we find is the manifestation of verses 19 through 22 in the church today is really the diaconal ministry. You bring your offerings to the church as a kind of providing as gleanings those who need. And we should be lavish. We should be lavish. We don't just put it in a barn and hold on to it. We open up the silos and we give. Again, the Lord says, because remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Be generous, be gregarious to protect the poor and provide for them. The great example of this is, of course, Ruth and Boaz. Ruth went out to glean the fields of Boaz to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi, after her husband had died. And Boaz tells the servants to leave Ruth alone that she may continue to glean. Boaz is the picture in the Old Testament of an honorable Israelite man. And Ruth, though a Moabite, is a picture of a godly woman. And both of them together give us an example of what the family, a royal family, is like because ultimately David comes from them. If you want premarital counseling material, go to Ruth and go to Boaz. This is how you do it well. That even as Boaz was a man of great power and influence, he took care of those with nothing. That is what a true Israelite is. These are the cases then. And then there's 25 verses 1 through 3. If there is a legal dispute and someone, having brought legitimate evidence, is pronounced guilty, there is a sentence of guilt, then the punishment must fit the crime. Parents, think about this. Your child has done something wrong. And you over-discipline. What is the effect of that? Shame. And not righteous shame. There is a, a relationship of terror. And what you have done is you have torn down that child's own understanding of who they are. I'm not trying to psychologize. Have you ever seen a dog that's been beaten? Needlessly beaten? And that dog's opinion of itself and the world around it is forever altered. 
In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about the saints and their ownership, even of animals. But especially those who bear the image of God. If it comes time to whip, and you can whip, 40 lashes in the public sphere. These punishments were carried out in public. What happens to that man who is beaten before Israel if it is overdone? His name, his reputation, is forever altered in the eyes of the other Israelites. And instead of satisfaction for judgment, there is needless shame. Degrading is the word. Your brother be degraded in your sight. How many times, boys, have you been with other boys and you make fun of the friends that are there in the eyes of your other buddies? And for what reason? This is why bullies do what bullies do. And the result of that is what? It is to feel small and insignificant. And what we must do as a people of God is we must temper even the judgment upon the guilty according to the crime itself. Think even of how many are incarcerated today because of overcharges and over-sentencing. And what happens to those men typically in prison? They lose sight of righteousness altogether. And they hate the law. They hate themselves. They hate, they hate, they hate. That is the fallout. That is the rot that creeps into a culture that does not delight in the judgment and the fair judgment of God's law. And so what are we called to do? Second point, a good name in the land. Let's look. We must be careful that we labor that our names might not be degraded. That means stop gossiping, stop making fun of, and encourage and support one another. Now, if you go out in our garage, there's some gym equipment. And there is a rule. When you go out in that garage, you don't ever say anything degrading to anyone else. You go in there and you can only say this kind of thing. Awesome. Good job. Well done. That's it. Why? Let's say I'm out there with my boys and we're doing some deadlifting and their form is just sloppy. And I say, that looks terrible. You are horrible at that. Guess what they will never ever do again? Pick that bar up. Why would they? Why would they do it? What has happened? I have crushed the identity of that child. And instead, I should say, all right, here's what you need to do. Great job. Let's keep that back straight. Neutral spine. Look up at the ceiling. Or look up higher on the wall. And this is how I want you to do it next. This is how God instructs us. In fact, we read of it in the Scriptures. Christ, who is the great judge of all the earth, the cosmic king of heaven and earth. This is what is said. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He is gentle with the lowly. Why? Because the way to bring the lowly out of their state of lowliness is to what? Honor the name that is theirs because they are sons and daughters of the King of heaven and earth. Fight not to degrade one another. Now, make it genuine. You know, 
Oh, you're so good at that. People can see through that, all right? Even kids can see through that. But labor to honor, not to tear down, not to destroy, but to build up. Because we are responsible for keeping that rot out. And so what do we do? We honor one another at all times. Even in the case of church discipline. Even in the case where there is someone who is dishonored themselves. We do not heap upon them needless dishonor. In addition to it, parents, this is oftentimes the tendency we parent with what? Guilt. It's so difficult not to do. And we bring up the past as a means of, as a cludgeon to try to convince them at this present time that what they're doing is wrong. Very difficult to avoid. But we must be careful for this reason. What are we called to do? To protect the good name, your good name, and the good name of another. Now, how do you protect your good name? Psalm 1. Don't go where names are spoiled. Don't go to the house of folly. Live a life of righteousness before God and men. It's that simple. Now, it's difficult to do. But by living righteously, by loving faithfully, by serving. Do you know the kinds of people other people talk about fairly, complimentarily? That's not a word. I just made that up. But you can write it, if you can spell it, in your notes. They, people speak of you with favor when you have served them and honored them. By testifying truthfully for the cause of righteousness and the glory of God. Right now, we have an obligation to tell things how they are. When we are surrounded by a culture that wants to lie to one another about the way they think things are, and they are not that way. And so sometimes bearing witness means bearing reproach, even when we tell the truth. How do you protect the good name of others? By exhorting others to live righteously and to protect their good name. By telling them what is true. By calling them to repentance, as the confession says, in witness bearing. The greatest way to restore the name of another is to lead them to the one who is able to give them a name that is honorable, and that is Christ Jesus. If you wish to be one who is a repairer of the breach, then lead them to the one who motivates them to honor and holiness. Declare what is true of Christ. In fact, Christ is the only man who has ever lived of which no false charge could ever stick. There is not one thing you could say of Christ. It is an accusation of unrighteous, and yet he bore reproach, did he not? And he bore that reproach so that before God who is in heaven, our names might be righteous, holy. That before God, as judge of all the earth, you and I will never be anything other than beloved children. And we have his name emblazoned upon us. Son and daughter. Tell men who the Messiah is, for in him... We find our true identity, our real name. That is how we take dominion. We tell it like it is. Now that can be calling an elephant an elephant. It can be a giraffe a giraffe. That's a boy, that's a girl. 
And the insanity of our day says, well, no. And we're saying, no, that's the way it is. Let's not get confused. And you will bear reproach at times by not bearing false witness. In fact, there are times in the Scriptures like that of Rahab where someone came to her and said, where are the spies? And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And for that, God commended her. She sought to maintain the cause of righteousness in a land that was replete with unrighteousness and pagan idolatry. There are times where we must seek by God's help to call a thing what it is. Because in due time, God will honor that truth-telling. For through Him, and by Him, and for Him are all things. Be content with what God says about you. You are son, you are daughter, you are beloved. And by this, God will help us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God.